Amen. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Uh, last week, as we, we transitioned into chapter 10, we began uh, somewhat of a new section of the book of 2 Corinthians, but it really does carry the same theme. The theme of the book, as we've started from the beginning, has been really, what is the authentic Christian, or what is authentic Christianity? And, and Paul really um, delved deep into the sincerity of what makes a Christian a Christian, not in appearance not in practice, not in discipline, but in the heart. What is a Christian? And as we now get into chapter 10 and Paul changes gears, he begins to defend himself a little bit from some of the people that had moved into Corinth and had uh, become critical of Paul for the sake of elevating themselves. And so as Paul now uh, goes into sort of a self-defense mode, He's not doing it for the sake of his own reputation and guarding his own dignity, but rather for the safety of the church uh, from those that would come in and try to uh, steer them in a wrong direction or, or to turn them away from, from safety. And that's Paul's motive and why he's defending himself. But for us who don't know Paul and uh, really don't need to, to hear his defense in, in that regard, for us what it is, is a testimony of what is authentic ministry. As Paul kind of opens up the hood, as it were, of his own vehicle and, and shows us what drove him and what made him tick and why he did what he did, it becomes for us a picture of what it really means to serve the Lord. And that serves two purposes. Uh, first, for our own selves, it's an example. We're all called to serve in some capacity. Every one of us is an influencer in someone's life. And we want to be the real thing, right? We don't want to export a plastic uh, fake Christianity that is in name only, but we want to possess the power of God and the reality of his uh, essence and truth and the transformation that he brings. We want those things to be real in us. And, and thus what Paul says to us is challenging to us personally. Are we these things? But on the other side of the coin, what this serves for us is as a guide to those of us that feel as though we, we still need an example. I mean, we all always need an example. God has provided that for us. And there are so many that do so much in the name of Christ, but is it really representing him the way that he is to be represented? Is a ministry really uh, his, or is it just bearing his name, but representing something different? And so Paul's defense of himself uh, gives to us that as well, a picture of what ministry should look like. What is authentic ministry? And so as Paul continues this defense, he answers that question. Now, in the first six verses, just to pick up in the context of where we'll be in verse seven, in the first six, Paul gave to us the reason for his ministry. And, and we could summarize that just simply in that, that it's to manifest the power of God through the gospel in reaching into the souls of lost people in order to bring them to true salvation and true transformation. And that was, in essence, the reason why Paul was in ministry, is what drove him. He wanted the power of God to do its work in people's lives. And so he kind of brought that to us. We looked at that last week. And the challenge that he left us with is... Uh, am I experiencing and have I experienced that power within my life? Is there evidence in me that Christ is really at work and alive in, in me? Or am I simply living a religious expression or form 
of godliness that is void of any real power. And that's kind of where Paul left us off. And so as we continue, he goes on now sharing his motives or what drove him in the ministry. And he holds that in contrast to those that were slandering him there in Corinth. And so we continue now in verse uh, 7 as Paul uh, describes to them his desire to fulfill the calling that God had given to him. And so in defense of himself in verse 7 we pick up and Paul says this. He says, "Do you look on things <clears throat> after the outward appearance?" In other words, what Paul is saying to them in light of the agitators that were coming and slandering him, is he saying to them in a sense is when you make your assessment about what is real and what is fake, what is truly godly and what is not, Are you doing that based solely upon what you can observe on the outside of a person? Looking at the way that they're dressed, looking at merely the externals, the things that you can gather from being in someone's presence. Is that the basis of your evaluation or your analysis? Just simply what you can observe and touch with your five senses. And and, and obviously, in just even hearing that question, Uh, it would bring um, a a foolishness almost into the mind of the Corinthians. Well, of course, that's not the way that we're supposed to judge. Uh, We all know you cannot judge a book by its cover. And every single day we see things that are put forth in front of us to represent one thing. But behind that representation, they are altogether something totally not that. You know, and if, and if everything in the world is like that, then of course you can't judge a ministry based upon simply the external things. And so he says, do you look on things simply after the outward appearance? He says, if any man, speaking now to those that would slander Paul, trust to himself that he is Christ, then let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. Well, not that we are Christ, but we belong to Christ. We are his possession. We belong to him. So here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying there's a whole host of people that have come into your midst there in Corinth and that have said, we are the real thing. We are real Christians. And Paul was simply, I mean, he was maybe, you know, he had a, a, an ulterior motive. He was trying to get something from you, but he was weak. I mean, he, he didn't have the, the poise that we have. He wasn't eloquent like we are. He just, he, he's not the real thing. You really should be following us and not listening so much to Paul. And what Paul's simply saying to these men that were slandering him is he's saying, hey, guys, just a moment. I want you to think about something. Do you agitator do you slanderer gossip do you really believe that you belong to jesus christ and of course they they would say yes we belong to jesus christ and paul says well then as you believe in christ then you gotta put that same measurement that you measure yourself by upon me as well and so what what does that lead us to now let me ask you this by way of explanation how many of us in this room look like on the outside the equivalent of what we are on the inside. In other words, the representation of our Christian being towards someone else, how much of a reality is that a reflection of what's going on inside of us? And the answer for every one of us is that those things are not equal. 
we always put forth that we are more spiritual than we actually are. Every one of us does that. And, and the reason is because we judge ourselves based on our intentions. We all intend to, to serve God in the best way possible. We all intend to obey him and do what's right in our mind. We all want to please him. We have this Romans 7 struggle going on in our lives all the time. The things that I want to do, I, I, I'm maybe not doing perfectly right now the way I would want to. And the things that I don't want to do, that's where I keep screwing up and I keep doing those things. But I don't want to do those things, but I find that there's a power in me that I can't defeat so much and, and there's this war going on inside of me. And Paul said that was true of his own life. He had that struggle going on inside of him. And all of us do. Now, we don't walk around and wear a t-shirt that says what our sins are. You know, this is what I'm struggling with. If you really saw what was going on in my heart, the things that I think about when my, my mind tends to wander, we don't do that. We, but we know what our intention, we know that we belong to Christ. And what Paul's saying is, hey, do you cut yourself a break when you think about your own spiritual condition? Well, listen, if you cut yourself a break, then do me a favor, cut me some slack too. Because I'm certain that your outward appearance is not equal to what you are on the inside. And you're judging me based upon what you see on the outside. But understand that I am not necessarily what you see. In fact, Paul was probably way more than what they could see. And he's saying to them, before you judge someone else's maturity, think about the vast difference between what people see in you and what you actually are. What do your actions say about you? Not your intentions, because that's what we really are. We tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and other people by their actions. And what we should do is judge ourselves by our actions and judge other people by their intentions. And Paul is saying, you guys could pass that same courtesy on to me. And then he gets into his authority in verse 8. He says, for though I should boast, and he's saying that he's about to, he's setting us up, somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us for the purpose of edification and not for your destruction, he said, I will not be ashamed. In other words, Paul's about to say, I'm going to boast for a minute about the authority that God's given me in the ministry that I have. But I want to preface this boasting by saying that I'm not doing this just simply to puff myself up, but rather I'm doing it so that you might understand that he's given me this authority for your sake and not for my own. He says that I might not seem, or not that I might seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, say they, these agitators, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. In other words, Paul was much more bold in the way that he would write than he was when he would speak to them in presence. And oftentimes we hear Paul talking about what he was like when he was with them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He said that my speech and my preaching were in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. In other words, Paul wasn't eloquent. He wasn't polished. Tradition tells us that he was short, that he was a little bit stocky, that he was unattractive, and that he had a big nose. And there was nothing about his physical appearance or presence that commanded any special attention. 
And when he spoke, it wasn't emotionally moving to where it would lift the soul into another place. But there was something behind his speech that when he spoke, the words he said got into the heart and they affected change. And when Paul gave the gospel, the spirit fell upon people and their eyes were open to the truth of Jesus Christ. And the demonstration of Paul's authority was not in his ability to captivate an audience, but rather it was in what God did as Paul obediently opened his mouth to affect those that were listening. And so the agitators will say, yeah, you read his letters and his letters are weighty and powerful, but don't you remember sitting in his sermons? They were long and they were dry and one man fell asleep and died. True story. And Paul says, let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Paul says, you've seen the lamb, but the lion lies within. I have the ability to deal with what I need to deal with. And so Paul says, I'm going to boast of my authority. And so he begins doing that in verse 12. He says, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend or promote themselves. In other words, Paul is saying, I am not in the group of people that will stand in front of you and promote myself. That's not my way. It's not my style. I don't need to do that. He says, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, what Paul is saying to them now is he begins boasting about the authority that he has in Christ. Is he says that there is a whole group of people that serve the Lord and the way that they measure their value or evaluate their worth in the ministry or in their service to God is by comparing themselves with each other. Well, how many people come to your Bible study? How many people have you led to Christ? What gifts do you have of the Holy Spirit? What miracles are credited to your ministry? And then the person would give their answers and that person would say, well, that's great, young skipper. But if you knew how many people attended my Bible studies and how many people I've led to Christ and the healings and miracles that have taken place at my hands, well, then you would understand that the measure of God's spirit and presence in my life and ministry is way beyond that which you've experienced. What are they doing? They're comparing themselves among themselves, and they're measuring themselves by themselves. They're using man as an instrument of measurement for the effectiveness of their ministry. And what Paul is saying, I will never do that not one day in my life. And furthermore, anyone that does that, that measures their effectiveness and their relationship before God by measuring it against someone else, he says, is not wise. Do you hear what he says there in that? That it is not wise to do that. Now, there is a a hallmark characteristic of sheep. And you know the Bible calls us sheep over and over again? And one of the hallmark characteristics of sheep is that sheep take their cues and their leadings from other sheep. Have you ever noticed how styles work? You know, one influential person adapts a style or a haircut or, you know, a tattoo or something. 
And all of a sudden, it starts slow, but a movement begins wherein it'll sweep through a whole world because sheep follow sheep. They take their cues from other people. And the same thing can happen in the ministry. But Paul says when it comes to identity as Christians and when it comes to ministry, it is not wise to do that. Why not? Why isn't it wise for us to measure the strength of our devotion to Christ or the effect of our ministry by looking at someone else's ministry. Why is that an unwise thing? First of all, it's an unwise thing is because in order to do that, in order for me to compare myself with someone else in order to get a sense of how I'm doing with God, automatically it means that I have to take my eyes off of God and place them upon man. My eyes are automatically set in the wrong place. When Jesus rose from the dead and he spent the 40 days that he did talking to the apostles and communing with the disciples, getting ready to send them them forth, he had a, a, a meeting with Peter. You know the one I'm talking about. When he said, Peter, do you love me three times? And Peter was restored uh, back into fellowship with Jesus after denying him those three times. And, 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 and Jesus left Peter off by saying, Peter, when you were a young man, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to be led where you're not going to want to go. And, it, and John tells us that Jesus said this signifying the type of death that Peter would die. And Peter's response to Jesus' word immediately, without skipping a beat, was, what about him? And he pointed to John. He said, Lord, what about him? And Jesus smiled. Well, it doesn't say that he smiled, but I know that he did. (laughs) And he looked at Peter and he said, if it's my will that he stays alive until I come back, what's that to you? You follow me. That was the response that Jesus gave to Peter. He said, don't worry about what my plan is for John. I told you what my plan is for you. You follow me. And we, individuals that have been saved by grace and called by him and known by name, we are not called by him or used by him based upon what he's done in someone else's life. When he calls us, he calls us. And when he uses us, he wants to use us in the way that he is designed to use us. And what he's doing in someone else's life bears absolutely no reflection on the strength of the value of the calling that he's given to us. Therefore, if we measure our success and failure based upon someone else's calling, then what can happen is that we can begin to think that we're being successful when in fact we're total failures because we're not looking at the right measurement. Or we can think that we're total failures when God's assessment is that we're right on schedule where we're supposed to be and that we're successful. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. The prophet speaks by the Spirit of God for God, and he says this. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In another place, it says that they are past finding out. It is absolutely impossible for us to know exactly what it is that God has for us and what he wants for us. And especially when we're looking at someone else trying to figure that out. I don't think that there's a more frustrating thing in all of life than looking at man to try to figure out what God wants for us. 
God wants us to look to him. It's been well said that if you look at yourself, you're going to be depressed. Isn't that true? If you look at others, you're going to be distressed. But if you look at Jesus, you'll be blessed. And I know that's kind of cliche and even somewhat stupid, but there's some truth in it, isn't there? He doesn't want us looking at others in order to figure out what we're called to be. Measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, not wise. It will lead to discouragement. Another reason why it's not wise is because it is impossible for us to accurately measure the success or the fruitfulness of another person's ministry. And the reason is because we can only see the outward of that person's life and ministry. Isn't it amazing that sometimes that we see a brother or a sister in in the faith as we walk with him through the years, and it just seems that they appear to have everything together spiritually. You know, we look at their life and it just seems like they've got Christianity by the tail. We're struggling to figure out like, God, am I really hearing your voice? Am I really even saved? God, am I where I'm supposed to be? Do I know your will for my life? I don't know how to lead someone to Christ. I feel like I've never done anything for you. I don't know how to pray. And when I do, I feel like my my words are bouncing off the ceiling. Are you even with me? And then we look across the room at someone that we know or that maybe even got saved around the same time as us. And it seems like they just have fruit falling off the trees. It seems like everything that they do in the name of Christ is just flourishing and abounding and they speak and they have a golden tongue. They sing, doors open up for them and it's like, man, what in the world? What's wrong with me? Or you can look at a ministry that maybe you see on the other side of the country or the other side of the world and it just seems so fruitful and it, and it challenges you, it, 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 it stabs at you and you think, I want to be fruitful like that within my life. And you can start to think that they've got something that you don't. But the reality in that situation is that that person or that ministry that appears to you to be so fruitful, it is very possible that whoever is doing that or whoever that is, isn't right with God at all. It isn't necessarily that they're not saved, but they might be on the fast track to destruction because of things in their life that you don't know about. Because you can only see the surface. You only see what's shown. You can't see what's underneath the surface. Isn't it a strange thing that happens? Why is it that crooked people can be so spiritually successful sometimes? Have you ever noticed it? I know that I have. I've been walking with God for 17 years. I've been in ministry for most of that time because of the way that God saved me and the time that he did. And in the time that I've walked with Christ, I have seen some of the most crooked people blessed, so it seemed, in such spiritually powerful ways. And it is an incredible anomaly to me. And it makes me scratch my head. I say, God, why is it that it seems like they're so fruitful when they're so crazy, when they're so off the wall? They're not walking rightly before you at all. You know what the answer is, why that happens? I mean, we've all seen it, right? The megachurch pastor that you find out was having multiple affairs or that's been uh, drinking for many years and surviving on alcohol. And you, you, you go, man, you know, God, it seems like you were using their life. I was in there. I was blessed by that. You even did stuff in my life based on that ministry. What gives, Lord? Why were you still using that person? Here's the answer. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 29. It says this. It says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. 
And that is an incredibly comforting and also an incredibly fearful verse of Scripture. It's comforting because it gives me the assurance that God's not going to pull the rug out from under me every time I make a mistake. Because if he did, then every Wednesday night, every other Wednesday or something, you'd be like, man, that was horrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He's doing okay. That one was all right, you know, or whatever. But he doesn't do that. When he gives someone a gift, when he establishes a calling in someone's life, he continues to use that person. He, his gifts and his calling are without repentance, and it's comforting. Here's why it's fearful. It's because I might begin to think, or you might begin to think, that because God is continuing to use my life, that that means he approves of the behavior that I'm doing. And that's not necessarily the case. And so what happens is that someone who was right with God at one time, that was seeking him and experiences his blessing and his power in their life, they begin to drift to the right hand or to the left, and they begin to not walk with God the way that they once did. And God continues to use their life because his gifts and his calling are without repentance. And that person can become comfortable in a rebellious mode, still being used by God, thinking that everything is okay. But understand this that though the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, they grind thoroughly. And it's only a matter of time before your sin will find you out. And thus, 10 years, 15 years down the road from the time, there's a big explosion and all of a sudden a ministry comes crashing down like one of the great redwoods out in California and there's a thunderous crash and the kingdom of God receives a bruise. Why? Because the kingdom of God, or I'm sorry, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And so there's a danger in it. I think it's one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. I have observed in my life that if the spirit and power are given to a person before they are thoroughly humbled and broken before the Lord, it can be a real recipe for danger. And that should give insight maybe to someone here tonight. And you think, well, why is it that it seems like other people are doing so well and I'm floundering and flourishing and trying to figure out my right foot from my left in this whole faith thing? Listen, God is committed not to our temporary fruit, but to our finishing well. And if that means that there be a prolonged season of humility and brokenness and waiting while he roots self and sin out of us, then that is for our good so that we finish strong. It isn't fruit that appears that matters. It's fruit that remains. And God is interested in fruit that remains. And when he sees things in our lives that will bruise future fruit, he'll wait and he'll let us go through the valleys and through the fires and let those things be burned off so that we can have lasting fruit in the end. But coming back to our point, it's this. They that measure themselves among themselves and compare themselves with themselves are not wise. Because you cannot judge whether or not someone's even really pleasing God based upon what you see in their ministry. It might look good on the outside, but what God sees is something altogether different. Man is a flawed measuring stick. Comparing ourselves among ourselves almost always leads to either pride if I think that what I'm doing is better than someone else, or discouragement, 
if what I see when I look at someone else's ministry uh, is greater than what I think uh, mine is or, or I think mine should be. It never leads to a more effective life. And so Paul says, I will not do that. I will not compare myself with another ministry or another man to, to, to evaluate my worth in the ministry or in my relationship with God. I'm not going to live that way. And it's not wise for you to set one up against another and to judge on things outward. So how did Paul navigate this? How did he do that? Because, I mean, we are sheep, right? And sheep look at sheep. We notice what's going on around us. And so how do we do that? How do we walk with God and keep our eyes on him and, and, and keep our hearts fixed and not get drawn away with what someone else is doing within our life? Well, Paul answers that question as he moves on uh, in verse 13. He says, but we will not boast of things without or beyond our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Here's what Paul says. He says, what I am aware of and what I've come to learn as it relates to my own life and ministry is that God has given to me a certain amount, a measure, he calls it here, a capacity. You could call it a measuring cup. And he says that this is the influence or the calling that God has given to me, and it measures this much, and it reaches this far, and this is what it does. And he says that it's from him. It's according to the rule that God has distributed to me. And furthermore, it's a measure that has been ordained by God to reach even to you. The fact that I've been to Corinth and planted the church there is part of the calling that God has placed within my life. Now understand this. What Paul says here is that God has distributed a measure. And I want you to listen to that for just a minute and think about your own life and understand this. That God has given to every one of us here in this room that he has blood bought and put his name upon our lives. He has given every one of us a measure. A, a, a rule according to what he sees that we are able to handle, a sphere of influence and a skill set to use within that sphere of influence in order to serve him and serve his purposes within the world. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul wrote about this to the church in Ephesus and he used that word measure to them. And notice how he says it in Ephesians chapter four, verse seven. He says, but unto every one of us, and that includes you and I sitting here tonight, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, that measuring cup, that capacity that God's given to every one of us. And so every one of us has it. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. And then in verse 11, he says this. He says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And what's the purpose of those, uh, those offices? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto, listen, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now follow Paul's train of thought with me for just a moment here. What he says is this, is that unto every one of us is given a measure. When you got saved and you put your, your, your faith in Christ, he gave you a measure. But that measure was empty. 
It was an empty glass that was put into your life. And God has ordained that there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, all office leaders, people that he has called within the church. And the purpose of those offices is to equip the saints. That's what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. That the purpose of what we're doing right now is that your measuring cup is being filled up. You're being taught. You're being instructed. You're being exhorted and encouraged. You're being built up in your faith and your measurement is being lifted up. You're discovering who God is. You're discovering who you are. You're discovering the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. You're understanding spiritual warfare and spiritual climates. You're growing in your spiritual senses, your ability to discern and your ability to uh, understand light and darkness. And, And all of these things are happening as you're growing in Christ, listening to the word of God, practicing your faith, being disciples, the word that we use, all of those things, your measuring cup is being filled up. That's what Paul is saying. Until we all come in the unity of the faith unto the measure of the perfect man. So your measuring cup is being filled up. Why? He goes on in verse 15, same chapter, Ephesians 4. He says, but speaking the truth in love that we might grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, that is that every one of us uses what's been given to us, according to the effective working in the measure of every part makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. In other words, untying all of the fancy King James language in that, here's what Paul is saying. You were given an empty cup. Now fill it up and then pour it out. That's what he's saying. That's what happens. That's the purpose of it. And what Paul is saying concerning his own measuring cup here as he exhorts the Corinthians, he says that we are not going to boast of things outside of our measure. He says, this is the calling that God has given to me. This is my sphere of influence. This is my gifting. This is my personality. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. Take it or leave it. He can use me the way I am, where I am to do what he's called me to do. And anything that you would expect of me or place upon me that goes beyond the boundaries of that measurement, I'm sorry, I'm not responsible for it. I'm not going to boast of things that are beyond my measure but only according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, which, in fact, is a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul says, listen, you are the farthest borders that we have reached in the effective fruitfulness of our ministry. You're in it, but you're the furthest part of it. Uh, We've come as far as you, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope that when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule or measure abundantly in order to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things that have been made ready for our hand. In other words, Paul says, I don't desire to go anywhere where someone has already been preaching the gospel. 
building on a foundation that someone else has laid, but I want to uh, uh, build upon the foundation of what God has laid out for us in this um, measurement that he's given to us. Now, what Paul is saying to them here is this, and this is where it applies to you and I. He's saying that our measure is not limitless, limitless, but it did include you. And we're not boasting in someone else's things, but here's what we're hoping, he says in verses 15 and 16, is that we want to be enlarged by you so that our measurement might stretch in the future beyond you in, in that. And here's what Paul's saying, and I want you to hear this tonight. Listen, is that Paul is saying that I understand that if I am faithful and fruitful, in the thing that God has given me thus far, that he will give me more. And Corinth was the evidence of that. Because on Paul's first missionary journey, he didn't make it all the way to Corinth. He was given a boundary of just reaching parts of Asia Minor in, in the regions of Galatia. And that was the boundary. That was what God had given at that time. But Paul was faithful and Paul was fruitful. So God expanded and enlarged the measure so that on Paul's second missionary trip, he could cross the Aegean Channel and come into Europe and reach Philippi and the churches in Macedonia and then down into Achaia where he would reach as far as to Corinth. And Paul says, though we didn't have a boundary to reach you the first time, we did on the second time. And my hope is that your fruitfulness and our faithfulness to you will make it so that God might enlarge the measure yet even further that next time we can go to regions beyond you that have not yet been reached with the gospel of Christ. Here's the application. Is that for you and I, we have a measurement. And God desires to see that that measurement is filled up and then it is faithfully poured out as we allow him to use our lives. But the reward, or at least part of the reward that we get is that God enlarges our measure as we're faithful to use what he has given to us thus far. And Paul was pleased with that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, he says, to him that has, more will be given. Jesus also said that he that is faithful in that which is least will be faithful also in much. And so as we're faithful with what God has given us, and we use it to the best of our ability, then God enlarges that and he gives us even more. And Paul was driven to reach the unreached. And, and here, here, here he moves on then in verse 17. And he says, but he that glories, again, taking a shot at the agitators, let him glory in the Lord. That's a quote right out of Jeremiah chapter nine. It's Jeremiah chapter uh, nine, verses 23 and 24, famous verses. It says, uh, um, I'm on the wrong page. He says, thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, saith the Lord. And Paul says, let him that glories, glory in the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, look, you might not be impressed with my appearance or my eloquence or my presentation when I'm among you, but that's not in the measure that God's given to me. But what he has given me, he uses in me. And I'm going to glory in that. That's where I'm going to glory and boast. For not he that commends or, or promotes himself is approved, but whom the Lord 
commends. And so Paul is saying to these Corinthians here, in defense of himself, he's saying that my eyes are fixed exclusively upon the Lord. And I will give myself to the calling that he has placed before me. Not even necessarily the need. There's a big difference between the calling and the need. Have you ever noticed that? The need is always greater than the calling. But the calling is what God will bless. If we begin to try to serve the need, then we're going to burn out fast and we're going to be frustrated because that's not necessarily what God's given for us. What has he called us to? What has God called you to? That's where you're to give yourself. That's where you're going to be effective. Paul says, I will give myself to my calling and I will look to God for that. I will look to God for the results in my ministry and I will look to God to be the defender of my reputation. Let me ask you this tonight by way of just searching, letting this passage search us a little bit. What is the measure that God has given to you? What is your measure? What is the gift? What is the gifts or the skill set that God has, has graciously allowed you to have in order to serve him? What is your sphere of influence? Where is it that he has called you? Do you know even what that is? I can tell you this tonight, is that if you're seeking to reach beyond what it is that God has called you to do, then there will be no fruit nor reward that will come from that. Doing what God has not asked us to do is a waste of time and energy because it's not what he's going to bless within our lives. There's no satisfaction in us or in it. But there is a day of small things. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Zechariah says, For who has despised the days of small things? And then he goes on to talk about how they will rejoice and they'll see greater things that are yet to come. But that's our tendency, isn't it? That, that maybe we have a measure and we think, well, my measure is small and it seems insignificant or maybe I can't even pinpoint exactly what it is. Listen, don't despise the days of small things, but give yourself completely to what it is that God has called you to do and he'll bring you through the season that you're in and you'll see a greater effectiveness and a greater fruitfulness in the things that he has for you uh, to do in your future. It's, it's always the way it is. Give yourself to it. I, I know um, sometimes we can find ourselves in a situation that we just absolutely hate. And we think, God, I, I don't know if I could live one more day under these conditions. And if this is your calling for my life, I, I don't know if I still would sign up for it. You know, because I never would choose this. This is what I can say to you tonight. I can say that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what, he, what we need and where he's leading us. And he is set to fully prepare us for the thing that he has made for us. And here's a secret. This is free. This is gold. Take this. That the way out of something you don't like in the Christian life is to embrace the thing that you're trying to get away from with all your heart. It's, what's the word I'm looking for? Antithetical or whatever to, to the logic, you know? But it's the way it works. Embrace it. If God is leading in a certain direction and he's got you somewhere, do it with all your heart and with all your might. That's true for a mom. It's true for a dad. It's true for a workman. It's true for a person in a ministry. It's true for whatever it is that God's called you to be and do. It's true for a student. It's true in a marriage. Give yourself to where God's got you and he will lead you through it in his time. He knows exactly what we need. And so um, Paul uh, gives to them here his motive, which was to reach the unreached and to fulfill the calling that he had within his life, not comparing himself 
with others, not measuring himself according to someone else's ministry, but keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord exclusively and operating in faithfulness to what God has called him to do. We'll stop there for tonight and we'll pick up in chapter 11 next week as Paul then goes on to talk about the falseness of these apostles and gives to us some great ways in which we can identify uh, what is truth from what is error and we can search uh, in that our own hearts as well. And, and, and really a classic chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, as Paul, Paul really lets us see everything that he suffered for the name of Christ and what God used those sufferings to produce in him and, and how he wouldn't trade them for anything. So very, very, very valuable text of scripture in the New Testament. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the uh, scripture that's before us here in chapter 10. And Lord, as we uh, consider our own lives, and, and tonight we uh, sit before you and you alone, and we let your Holy Spirit look inside of us. And, and Father, we know that you see things that we can't. You see a future that we don't yet perceive and understand. And you know where you're leading us, Lord. And, and Father, we find it so difficult sometimes to, um, to see what it is that you're doing or where you're leading or what, what's to come or why we're going through what we're going through. But we ask tonight, Lord, that you would give us the grace to not fix our eyes upon the things that are seen but that you would help us to see the things that cannot be seen. And we pray that you would establish in us a faith that is so strong and so real and that you would establish your love within our hearts that is so rooted in us that, God, we wouldn't care what you're doing with someone else's life, that it would mean nothing to us. And, Father, that you would give to us something of what you gave the Apostle Paul when he would say that none of these things move me, neither do I count my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And so, Father, I pray that tonight you would show us that you have a plan for each one of us, that, Lord, you don't waste one fragment of a loaf of bread and that certainly you're not going to waste our lives. For you said, Jesus, consider the sparrows of the field, that they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Of how much more value are you than they, O you of little faith? And so I pray tonight, Lord, you'd stir up faith within our hearts and that we would be able to see our lives in the greater context of your plan. And if tonight, Lord, any of us here are falling short of what you have for us, we've been distracted by the things of this world We've become those that live exclusively for this world and not for your kingdom. We pray tonight, Lord, for a fresh vision and a fresh filling that we might see our lives in the context of your kingdom. And so, Lord, please, would you hear us now? Would you take and let these things search us? Would you let us know that we're valued and loved by you? Let your love be shed abroad in our hearts and that we might be kept there. So let your light shine upon us. Hear our prayer tonight, Father. Write these things upon us, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.